Hello and welcome to my podcast, WTY. What the youth? I'm Laura and I'm a youth worker and I currently work with 10 to 17 year olds who are at risk of gang crime and knife crime. Over the next few weeks I'm going to be talking to a few youth worker friends of mine who've had their own battles growing up and now help young people to be the best people they can be. We'll be talking openly and honestly about our experiences of youth work and delving into the world around us. I do hope you enjoy it. Please know we will be talking about sensitive subjects, but we may also have some giggles sometimes, because if you don't laugh, you cry in life. This is my attempt at trying to be Stacey Dooley. Please like, share and don't forget to subscribe. I really appreciate you listening. Now let's get into the podcast. Happy Monday everyone, it's Laura here and welcome to this week's podcast. I'm sorry I didn't pop in last week for a podcast but I was feeling a bit emotionally drained from work and it's important to prioritise one's own energy and not always push yourself. So always remember if you need a cuppa, if you need some time off, take it. Anyway, welcome to to today's podcast. Today we're talking to my old drama teacher Mrs Mack, the renowned, the legend that is Mrs Mack. I know her as that, but her actual name is Tana McPherson-Smith. She has over 20 years experience of being a teacher, working as a housemistress and being involved in lots of pastoral different roles. Over the last few years, she has left the big world of teaching and now runs her own own business, working with um, around mental health, but actually working with early intervention. Her passion is to get in there really early on, like three to six and prevent mental health from developing into long at all. So she is fascinating. I do hope you enjoy this, and I hope you're all listening with some Christmas trees up and none of you excluders. Anyways, let's get into this podcast. Hi, Miss Mac. Thank you so much for joining me. I'm going to call you Miss Mac, and that is not your name because you were my teacher at school. So do you just want to do a quick introduction of who you are and what you do? Okay, so I'm Tana McPherson-Smith, and I run my um, organisation called Clear Minds Education, and everything I do is about changing the face of mental health for children and teenagers by starting at the grassroots. Um, I'm not interested so much in in what we do to patch up those who are already really, really um, struggling with mental health illness. My uh, focus is on preventing it from starting in the first place by alleviating trauma, by um, changing the way that we um, educate and parent children from the very earliest age onwards. So we're doing everything in the first, you know, sort of 14 years of life. Um, So that's what I spend my days doing. I go into schools across the country. I deliver workshops for parents and for teachers. And I also work extensively with children from the ages of four to about 24. So... um, yeah, very passionate about that. I'm just finished my first book, so Amazing. lots going on. Amazing. And of course, not only is this what you do now, but you are hugely experienced in being a teacher and a housemistress yourself in your previous life. So you're not coming yep. out as an outsider and judging the situation. You have lived, breathed, and I want to say at least 20 years in education. Or am, uh, 20, I, am I yeah, aging 20, you a bit? No, <laughs> 25 years in education, and I've been doing this for the last seven years. So, and I've worked with children of all ages. And of course, as you know, lived with 60 girls, 
60 teenage girls in our house for 12 of those 25 years. And what a joy 60 girls are. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I love them. I did love them. You did love them. So I I love that you're into early intervention. Um, I am passionate about early intervention myself. I think early intervention is the key to reducing the impact of lifelong mental health conditions and lifelong trauma impacting people, um, you know, impacting what relationships they get into in future life, what jobs they do, etc. Everything. Trauma impacts everything in a person's yeah. life. Um, sadly, as we know, budget cuts mean that early intervention is very, very limited in this country. Um, early intervention, I'm, I'm going to say it, barely exists um and unfortunately early intervention is something that if you can afford it you can pay for it and if you can't afford it you know the reality is 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 with cams um it's not cams fault they are hugely underfunded but i've got a child at the moment he's sleeping behind a doctor's surgery and cams is still not picking him up so there is it's it is scary and so you knew me when I have recorded my mental health story if anyone wants to listen to before, but you knew me when I was, I hadn't had a manic episode at that point, but I had had severe depression. Um, Not because of the school I was at, but the school was definitely a trigger. Um, I believe that something can, even if I hadn't of experiencing, experienced the bullying or the abuse that I experienced from other areas in my life, I would have eventually suffered from mental health conditions. It was just the first trigger was isolation and yep. the severe bullying I experienced at school, which was not the school's fault at all. Bullying yep. happens in every school. Um, but I remember one profound thing. Um, and the profound thing was said by the school's doctor was when I wanted help when i first started to become suicidal thoughts he said to me you are just an unhappy child you are not mentally ill were the exact words i got so when i I know head drop moment so when i needed early intervention when i so desperately needed help and we're talking this is a private school we're not talking you know nhs gp we're talking you know 30 grand a year type (laughs) type crap when i needed the help i wasn't given it what did that lead to that led to nearly eight ten years of a declining mental health which eventually led to a, a psychiatric inpatient stay yeah now i'm not blaming the doctor at all and most doctors are brilliant but there are a lot of doctors that are miseducated in mental health due to lack of training due to not having updates and training and I do wonder if that doctor would have said, right, let's get you on a medicine now. Let's not just try counselling. Let's get you on a medicine now. Would I have ended up in psychiatric hospital eight years later? Now, you're playing with fire here. That might not have been the case. But actually, if early intervention was a thing, I could have cost the NHS a lot less money. And this is what the NHS doesn't view, is that when you have a kid that becomes poorly for the first time, rather than being, right, let's offer you your six sessions of help in mind, which is the the, the telephone service. Six sessions for a child that's experienced extreme childhood trauma is not going to do anything. Like, on a phone call for half an hour. 
it's not going to do anything. Six sessions of CBT is not going to change. It may help some people, but vast majority, it's not. But then that, if that child gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse, which is the reality, then that, the money, if we're thinking money, inpatient hospital stay, you're talking two, three grand a week for the NHS to cover the cost of a bed. Yeah. But with yep. budgets, it's crisis, not this. And it drives me insane because recently I've had a, I've had a case here of a boy who's got drug-induced psychosis mixed with PTSD. So trauma and drugs together, not a good mix. Yeah. And it broke my heart because I saw a system again that has not changed, if anything got worse. Mm-hmm. And I just boggles my mind. And I'm so thankful that people like you are coming in and trying to shift the system, you know. Um, I wish there was, I wish there's more of it. So let's talk a bit about early intervention for you. Why do you like early intervention? What do you think it does? What do you think it achieves? See, for me, the early, the intervention starts actually right at the beginning in, in the way that we parent, um, but also the way that we educate, because for me, I think primary schools, uh, nursery schools have got the most single, most important role in ensuring the better mental health and we that's not going to stop events happening whether it's trauma or bereavement or parents separating or being in an accident or whatever it is it's not going to change the event but I I believe that if we communicated with children differently from a very early age um, we treated children differently from a very early age that we could stop the level of their response to whatever trauma happens so if you had been picked up earlier as being as 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 having difficulties um, of having low mood or of um, struggles with bullying and so on and so forth if, if there'd been somebody who had really listened to you and had worked with you with um, some release therapies but also taught you how to change the way that you think mm. then I don't think you would ever have got to the state that you've got to if someone had stepped in, at, you know, even at that stage of being a teenager already. And, you know, if I look back, so mental health hit me when I was, I, w- I would say 12. But actually, there were indicators before then. So I used to have extremely vivid nightmares as a child. Yeah. Um, night terrors. And when I, with a young person now, and I psychoanalyze them, a lot of those kids have had the night terror. And I think that's often an indication, in my own opinion, of you know, mm-hmm. the chance that that child, the over-creative brain, I have a very creative brain, could yeah. lead to the mental, the long-term mental health condition as an adult. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if you look at my own case, that, you know, my mum became quadriplegic just yeah. shortly after yeah. I was born. So she was paralysed from the neck down for the entire time that I knew her. And she died just before my eighth birthday. And we were, I saw her as, as my absolute soulmate. Mm-hmm. Um, but after she died... No, through nobody's fault it just everybody trying to deal with it, it the, the feeling was you knew she was going to die we just have to get on with life and there was no such in all those years ago when the dinosaurs were roaming the earth there were no such thing as counsellors so yeah. the, it was never spoken about at all after her death so all of, those, all of that grief was just and the anger and the upset and the disbelief was was packed down inside but alongside with that was what I now understand were my limiting beliefs were that well my belief was um and it's taken me a lifetime to discover this and when Mm -hmm. I did you know about 
nine months ago it actually really made me cry was was that I always thought that I believed that if I was a really really good girl she would get better what mm-hmm. I now understand was that my belief was if I was really really good then when she died she'd take me with her because we kept being told it was going to happen yeah how heartbreaking is that for a seven-year-old to think that they have failed everything and and we and would you say not that labeling is a good thing would you say that your first seven years of your life is probably a bit of attachment disorder linked into there yeah absolutely absolutely i mean attachment disorder is so like with kids in care it's very very common and the impact you know yeah yeah and a sense of abandonment too, in the sense that not I wasn't, I was in a very, very loving family, very mm. loving family. But when she died, dad was then working every hour, you know, going up to London to get to earn the money to keep us afloat. And my brother and sister were immediately sent to boarding school. Mm. So it was like everybody left, the whole family just left. So, <clears throat> um, yes, I mean, I think that was very strong in there. Uh, and now now knowing if, if there had been the right person who could have just actually you know, giving me a hug, which is what I used to do against all rules to all the girls in the house, you know, all the pupils. But hugs are so important. They are so vital. And so I've had in, I've worked in lots of different settings and lots of different settings have different rules because of safeguarding of what you're allowed to, you know. In the children's home, because they were under 11 and because they do not get a hug, we were allowed to hug. That is the only job I've allowed when hugging. Princess Trust yeah. was a body block. They come to hug you, you have to do that. And side yeah. hugs. A hug speaks a thousand words. And, I, you know, there's someone in my family that's never, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell you another time, but that is something that I lacked from a certain family member as well. And yeah. I see that in kids. That hugs mean a thousand words. They mean more than anything. And a child that is properly hugged and, and feels physically love. Um, from one person to mm. them or from a number of people to them is is going to have a much better start in life there's no question there's no question and also so, the crying crying is great therapy oh yeah, absolutely oh, i was told i was once told by someone very close to me that human beings don't cry and i couldn't disagree more to me if i have a good cry i know mean, <laughs> oh, a good cry endorphins spark out of me like <laughs> a good hug and a good cry nothing better <laughs> and just so sad that so many children obviously particularly boys are just mm. not made to think that that's acceptable it's just yeah. even in this day and age and the number of I, I was working with a class of um eight eight-year-olds and I was doing a whole thing on feelings and I asked them about um crying and I said how many of you have ever been told to like kind of if you wanted to cry to kind of man up and get on with it and I think three quarters of the class put their hand up. Yeah. They're eight-year-olds, you know. You don't, you, you don't cry. Just get on with it. You and I and and the fact that they even recognised what I was talking about, I thought was was Amazing. you know said enough. And all and all that happens, especially with boys, is that that need to cry turns into a fist into the wall, and that is the male side yeah. of self-harm. From what I experience yeah. in my work, you know, boys having yeah. knuckles that are just covered in blood from. They may not be cutting, but they are, or crying, but they are so engulfed in, not rage, but in emotion that they cannot process because they've been taught that being a man is not to cry, is not to speak to your emotions, is just to get a spliff, just to get a zoo and whack yourself out. And that 
goes against the wall or the face or the sister and if they could just yeah. have a good cry and a hug <laughs> before that I rage would, oh my god yes i mean i would so love to get into i mean I, I do i suppose it through all of my work but getting into kids that just haven't felt that connection and the, the sadness for me is that i think it's it's going to get very much worse because of our addiction as adults to our mobile phones oh, as one, yeah. one example because you know babies need to have constant facial contact constant interaction facially mm -hmm. articulation um feeling seeing hearing expressive moods in order for them to develop properly and to develop their empathy but more and more um I mean, like people watch everywhere, as I'm sure you do. You'll see people pushing their pushchairs with or sitting at tables with, with babies and young children. And the adult is so engaged in their phone that there is no there is no facial expression or interaction at all. It's just the connection to the phone. They're either on the phone, they're texting. Um, and the more that we do that to, to babies going forward, the more we're noticing that they're not developing empathy. They're not developing mm -hmm. physically and mentally in the way that they should. And, and emotional they, intelligence parents, is so important. Like without emotional intelligence, you're yeah. going to struggle long yeah. term in life. But then those those who've been deprived of that, when they then become adults and then they're becoming parents, you know, we're, we're weakening that strength because it's not something they are mm. aware of, this need for connection. And so and it just, it does scare me. I have to oh, say it, does it scares scare me massively. Um, the only uh, social media I think has had a positive impact is uh, TikTok, because at least it gets kids up and up and dancing. <laughs> That's my only thought. That, that, of course, TikTok had a huge it. negative as well, like the amount of videos that have gone on there have been negative, but yeah. actually having kids dancing and getting off their asses again yeah. is, yeah. is, yeah, is the only positive I can say. There was an interesting uh, uh, statistic that came out, actually, and said that one of the only... Well, I think technology has been hugely um, beneficial for the elderly community, but I don't think it's been beneficial for the younger community. That's my view. Um, but that teen pregnancies are the lowest they've ever been. And the reason being is because people are spending too much time on their phones and not in person. <laughs> Mm -hmm. yeah well yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> but there are some benefits then <laughs> yeah there are some benefits so another topic i wanted to branch on within schools was um the the uh basically i'm gonna call it the pandemic of self-harm that now exists in schools yeah. when i was at school so let's talk from when i was like 13 16 so i'm 28 now 15 years ago i remember eating disorders being the thing i don't remember self-harm it would have happened but i don't remember self-harm being as big as it is now <laughs> i remember girls being in the corridors or whatever being like oh i'm not eating this meal or not all you know like you get the true anorexics and you get the people that are very self-conscious and to try and do it the same with self-harm you get the true self-harmers and you get those that are doing it because friends are doing it tiktok's telling them to do it that's the only way they can express their emotions so I feel like there's yep. been a shift away from the eating disorder to self-harm. Ever since I've been working professionally, self-harm has been huge. I mean, I don't work with a kid that doesn't have scratches on their arms. Yep. Um, what are your views around self-harm? And do you agree with me that there's been a, an increase in it? I, I don't know if I've got that right. I mean, of course, eating disorders are also another type of self-harm. But the whole cutting thing, I think has always existed, but I think it exists a lot more now than it did 10 years ago. 
it it has it was always there yeah um you know, without I mean, that always there lower, lots of uh, but but it wasn't it wasn't openly spoken about in the same way it was mm-hmm. only like maybe in the inner circle uh, you know of each individual who was doing it if at all um and i worked with lots and lots of um kids and not just the girls it wasn't so obviously prevalent amongst the boys then but it was happening but i think um now because everybody's talking about mental health and emotion and issues so much more widely um, through social media and everything else. And, and people are able to share what's going on and not going on. And also the, the comparisons are so, you know, like 24 hours of the day is comparison with other people that appear to be living, living perfect lives mm. that people are needing to find ways to cope with what they're internalizing on a daily basis. Yeah. So I think that, yes, for sure, it, I think it has changed quite dramatically, the number of people that are, are self-harming, but also more so the number that we actually know about, because they're talking about it and sharing it and yeah. even sending pictures and telling people how to do it. Which is scary. Um, I, I attended some interesting self-harm training, actually. And uh, the lady who said it, she used to run at work in high-risk um, teenage children's homes for girls that had borderline personality disorder, which is also... It's not a new diagnosis, but it's much more aware now. BPD is one of the hardest mental health conditions to manage, in my own opinion, from kids that I've worked with. And she said that uh, she had a self-harm kit for her kids, which is a very alternative... Listen to this. So every kid would have a self-harm kit, which means it would be clean, like you would give to a drug addict, um, a clean knife, um, a clean, you know, like nail scissor type thing and they would each have it in their handbags now the thoughts around this were they would use it but eventually that kit would become less and less used but because there was no shame surrounding i'm a Mm self-harmer it took away that so she was a recovering self-harmer and she still carries it in her bag but she's not used it in 10 years and she said this very different you know, approach seemed to work because there was an open and honesty about I'm a self-harmer, I'm going to cut myself, but I've got the safe equipment to do so rather than, you know, grabbing the kitchen knife from the kitchen that's got infections on, which is going to cause a much deeper cut and a much, you know, could hit an archery, which, you know, is difficult. It was openly, honestly talked about, which I thought was a very interesting approach. My work would definitely not allow me to do that. But I'd not heard that approach before. No. And did, do we know what the result was? Um, a quite a high level of success. Of course, there were girls that were more extreme because, you know, children's home extreming experienced yeah. high amounts of trauma in like, like extreme trauma. But it seemed to work. It would it didn't vanish self-harm, but it was it was a method of what we call in my work harm reduction. So, <laughs> for instance, when I work with the kids who have a cannabis issue, if I go in and say, never smoke cannabis again, they're going to kick the door down, tell me to F off and run out. Whereas if I work slowly with them and be like, right, can we do it in the morning, not morning, lunchtime, night? Can we do it? It's that approach rather than the old fashioned approach, which is yeah, kick off. And, and, the, and the only way to go completely sober is to have someone in a residential unit. That is the only, you cannot tell a kid, give everything up because it's almost impossible for them to do that. So 
because you're overriding something that is is in their deep subconscious mm. i mean you know their, their thinking brain is is only like what four to six percent of of the decision maker and the rest of it comes from the subconscious if it's that deep in there that need to self-harm through whatever form it is whether it's through alcohol or, or drugs or mm. um you know any, any other sort of form of addiction then it's not actually their mind that is going to be able to make the decision mm. they have to be sort of helped to be trained out of that mm. um, and that's where a lot of the work I do is about really changing the way people think so that you, by repetition, you completely override this voice inside that tells you this is what you need to do on a, you know, on a daily, minute, hourly, whatever mm. basis it is. You need to find your own person and who you are and run your mind in a way that works for you. And unfortunately, going back to education in this country, for some reason, we have an education system that is a one peg fits all halls, which to me is insane the kids i work with should not be doing gcses they you know no matter how many times they retake their mass gcse they will never get a c at mass gcse why and this is causing you know more and more mental health stress for young people it's the education system that fails people in this country you know and i i think we need to change and look very much to our um European counterparts, you know, like Denmark and so on, where children are not starting school until the ages of six or even seven oh. in some countries. And they need to be in forests outside. And you know, we were talking before, and and I think um, lots of kids who aren't able to do the fundamentals, like you know, succeed, achieve their maths GCSE and everything, there are huge numbers of children who have. Um, retained primitive reflexes mm. and those are reflexes that are in our body as we develop neurologically from the minute we conceive right the way through until for most of them it's a year and a half after birth but, but actually if those those reflexes if you imagine um, you've got a room full of dominoes that are all stacked so that if you knock one they all knock each other over yeah. but every so often one of them falls a bit sideways and then eventually the next domino falls and it carries on and then it, it stops somewhere else. That's that's almost like what happens with the reflexes where they're not developing through from the, the, their purpose to not being needed any, any, anymore. And you can see this, um, the impact of retrained reflexes on childhood behavior, um, on their learning abilities, learning disabilities, all sorts of things. Just some really, and, and if we were to make it standard that every child in nursery was to do the exercises that help to make sure that the reflexes have moved and done their job properly and are complete, mm -hmm. then we would find, um, we believe, a really strong difference in the emotional stability and in the learning abilities and um, behavior abilities of children going forward. And that's something we could implement so simply in the very first few, few years. We could make it a standard teaching through every school, which would actually really help to, um, to drop the, massively the numbers of children who were struggling with different subjects, because a lot of that is related to what's happening in these early years. Mm. Simple things, um, for example, uh, um, there's a reflex that a baby has that uh, when it's born, it, it can't choose to turn its head from one direction to the next it needs for something to catch its eye for, for there to be this movement and, and change of focus that mm. if, if that hasn't gone if that hasn't moved on as it should have done during its development that's a child that in a classroom the minute someone puts their hand up or um waves a piece of paper or walks past a window 
because that they've got that retained reflex, they cannot help but turn to look at that at what's going on. It's not a choice thing. So the teacher's constantly saying, "Will you concentrate? Will you look mm. at me?" Uh, yes, I'd like to very much if I could, but something makes me keep turning. And that, and if you can release that, there's a child who suddenly can concentrate so much better. Interesting. And there, there's so many examples. And interestingly, my son had um, treatment for retained moral reflex. Mm. Where that was 25 years ago. When it was that that kind of therapy was really very, I think, in pretty early days. Mm. Um, now it's increasingly common, but it's something that we should so be looking at, uh, in, and I think would really, really make an impact mm. on children in their teenage years if we could release those early on. Yeah, amazing. And you would reduce, you know, if if those were done, there'd be less troubled kids in the classroom that are causing the schools to struggle more and more every day with with the behaviours. Um, my view on education system is I would love to literally just rip it up and completely start afresh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So yes. I, I have quite an alternative view on what I think education should look like in this country. So I think there should actually still be a grammar school system. I think the grammar school system was a way for certain children to get out of the areas they were in. So a grammar school allowed a child that had the gift of an academic brain to get from a council flat to parliament do you see what i mean it was a way out schools that are just for, for kids that are in the middle but often i think actually being in the middle is one of the hardest things because if you're very clever you get all the support if you're very if you're struggling you get lots of support in the middle you're just left to your own devices so almost the middle part in a school system gets forgotten gets left no one notices your emotional needs yes you may be able to get those b's but you may be self-harming in the bathroom. You may be having dad that's doing something to you at home. So I think it's that middle ground that kind of gets left because they're not clever enough, but they're not naughty enough that they need help. Um, the same in poverty. I think being in the middle is often the hardest. Um, I would love to see at 11 kids who clearly can't do academics, but would be great builders to be able to start doing a more of a BTEC style approach from 11. I don't understand in this country why they have to wait till 16 in order to do an apprenticeship, in order to do a practical side course, because that time from 11 to 16, that is the that is the danger zone to me. That's the zone where the kids who have the needs you're talking about, the ADHD type tendencies, the, the, the attachment disorders, they get in trouble, they end up with a criminal record. By the time they get to 16, they're not employable, that they're not able, you know, they feel like such a failure because they've been told they're this, they're that. That by 16 going to college, unless they've got real guts, they're going to fall off the wagon. And that is what I see every day in my job. And it's really, really sad. And then I would completely, re, you know, be outside. But that's what I would do to the education system in this country. <laughs> I think there's an, there's an awful lot to, to that. And I think a lot more practical courses would really enhance many. But I think, I think if we were able to release things like primitive reflex and also bringing yeah. real coaching skills into teaching mm -hmm. because coaching is very different from teaching and if you coach children how to think for themselves and how to think differently and how to overcome emotional issues from a very early age they really can get a grip on what's going on mm -hmm. um, in their behaviours rather than the behaviours just escalating and moving forward and I do that with kids all the time mm -hmm. um, even from the age of five, four or five I'm getting children to think differently about um, how and find it. I give them a toolkit to be able to 
uh, fend off, you know, bullying comments so that they don't hurt them in the same way so that they don't become so insular. And I have a way of teaching about it that works for a five-year-old or a 95-year-old that mm-hmm. helps to really explain what it is that happens in the early years that can be completely innocuous. I'm not talking about necessarily the kids that have been through really deep trauma, but I mean, just on a day-to-day basis in a very loving, ordinary family, Mm. um, things that can happen with people that they meet early on, with the parents, with their family members, with the way that they're taught, with the behaviours of other pupils, repeated behaviours that really can impact in such a way that that makes that person much more vulnerable to a mental health issue later on. And if we could eliminate that by changing the way that we behave as adults when we're dealing with kids, that would go a long way to, to making the difference. Completely. I completely agree. It's been great talking to you, Miss Mac. I'm just going to end the recording here. And I completely yep. agree with what you say. Early intervention is the key. And if we can really change those mindsets, um, that would be brilliant. And I wish you all the luck with your book. How good to talk to you. Yeah. Speak to- It's been so much fun having you along with us on this ride today. I do hope you'll pop in again next week and I'll be talking to another youth worker about a different topic that we cover in youth work. We do know that all different young people have their own issues and that sometimes things may be a bit sensitive to others. So please be open and honest with the adults around you and your friends and always remember it's better to ask for help than struggle alone. On my page and Facebook and Instagram, you'll find lots of useful links to organisations you can contact to get help. I look forward to continuing the journey with you on this new podcast series, WTY, What the Youth. Bye for now. WTY, What the Youth.